This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. So welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today is a special episode coming from the heart of Melbourne, where we've just witnessed a screening of the Centre for Public Christianity documentary, For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Hence, today's big question really is about how is the church better and worse than you imagined? Now, today we're asking this question with two of the filmmakers of the documentary. First, to Dr. John Dixon. John has a degree in theology and a doctorate in ancient history, specialising in the birth of Christianity. He's founding director of the Centre for Public Christianity, a senior research fellow of the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie University, an Anglican minister and author of over a dozen books. He's an in-demand speaker and he joins us now. Please welcome Dr. John Dixon. Our second panellist today is Simon Smart. Simon is Executive Director of the Centre for Public Christianity. He has a Master's in Christian Studies, is a prolific writer and contributed to the book For God's Sake, an atheist, a Jew and a Christian and a Muslim debate religion. So please welcome Simon Smart. Well, John and Simon, thanks very much for taking some time now to chat about this documentary. Now, we've just seen a full-length cinema screening of For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. Now, it's been described as an unflinching documentary, and the film does raise lots of big questions. But before we get to discuss some of these, let's talk a bit about the film itself. So what inspired the making of the film? Are you looking for an excuse just to travel to exotic destinations around the world, Simon? Oh, well, yes, that... Uh, <laughs> well, you succeeded uh, in that, I suppose, yeah, as well. Thanks. Yeah, we did. We did manage to get to lots of places, so it was fun. We, um, we've been making this for about three years. It was about that length of time ago. John and I were talking to each other about the documentary we were going to make on world religions. So we had, we had a documentary written and ready to go, but we were you know, talking to each other. I think we were on a car trip somewhere, and I think it was John who said to me, you know, I, don't think, I just don't think this is the one we should be making. Uh, and I thought, I, I agreed, and we said, no, the question that just keeps on coming up for us, every time we do something in the public s square, in any sort of media or whatever, uh, people would write in to us and say, yeah, great, but what about the Crusades? What yeah. about the Inquisition? What about the support of slavery and the oppression of women and the hoarding of wealth? And, you know, the list would go on and on, and it was a long list. Yeah. And, and so you thought it was a valid list too. Like we yeah. just had to say it's a, it's a serious question that people have and we thought we had to address it. And so we kind of cleared the deck. So you started again, so to speak. Started again, put the whiteboard up and started to tackle this question. I think we were a bit naive, to be honest, <laughs> uh, as we took it on because yeah. it was a huge project. Well, congratulations on the documentary. It's been really well produced and uh, with many world exports. So, John, what was your favourite location then for the filming? For me, the most powerful place was uh, just outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem mm -hmm. where the Crusaders had slaughtered uh, men, women and children. To stand there was pretty confronting because I'd, I'd read the documentation around the Crusades. I knew the kind of bloodshed that had taken place on the Great Promenade. And to stand there was very confronting. But added to that was the fact that my guide that day, uh, our minder up at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, was herself a Muslim and she stood uh, just a metre off camera as I delivered those lines about crusaders coming and killing Muslim women and children. 
And by the time I got my lines right, three or four takes or whatever, um, she had a tear in her eye. Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, it's 900 years later and this is still an open wound. Mm -hmm. That was very confronting. Mm. And so you could kind of visualise what was happening there in some sense? Yeah, I mean, I I always think that that's why I was so drawn to history uh, because history does involve not just the cold analysis of data, but the imagination. You've got to let your imagination run wild when you're doing uh, historical analysis. And and yes, uh, my imagination did run wild that day. But to have a Muslim woman all these years later for whom this is an open wound, that's what actually brought it into the present and made me feel ashamed. And I don't even know if this is logical, but I had I felt I had to apologise to her mm. for so the Crusaders. You, you apologised to yeah, her? Yeah, but I, I wasn't there. And, and, and I like to think I wouldn't do it. Those jerks did, but I wouldn't, right? Mm. Because I'm enlightened and so on. But I actually, I don't know. Mm. I, maybe I would have. I, I probably would have. That's one of the big questions that this, this film raises, I suppose, or, or the, the history of the church in many ways. Yeah. So what about you, Simon? Was there a fa- particular favourite location that, or poignant location? Yeah, there, that you were, ha- there were plenty, actually, but um, apart from the tsunami in Hawaii, which was a whole s- other story. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It's worth pointing out at this point that I did all my own stunts for this. <laughs> okay, right. He's a horseman from way back. <laughs> that was pretty, pretty that. wild horse riding. Yeah, yeah. But I'd done a lot of work with, on the German church under Nazism yep. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that part of the story. And um, again, a little bit took, took me a bit by surprise when I went to Flossenburg concentration camp where he was hanged. So this is where Bonhoeffer was hanged? He was yeah. hanged, yeah, Bonhoeffer. Um, and I was really... Um, struck by that place. Mm. It's a very strange, like a lot of these uh, concentration camps are, it's a very strange place in that it's a beautiful town, little village really, in the mountains, and yet this terrible darkness uh, that you still feel, I almost feel Mm. like a spiritual darkness there. Mm. And the the sadness of the story, I just found it quite overwhelming at the time. And that took me by surprise. I mean, I'd read a lot about this, but when you stand there and it just becomes real in a way that it perhaps hadn't before. Mm. Yeah, that, mm. that was personally very affecting. Mm, mm, mm. So why the name of the film, For the Love of God? Uh, we like titles with a double entendre, right? Yeah. So uh, because <laughs> at one plain level you can say that Christians did their worst and best for the love of God. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a colloquialism that's almost a swear word. Oh, for the love of God, right? And so we're happy to play with that. And the subtitle uh, just sort of wrote itself yeah, well, because th- it's about the best and worst. Well, the subtitle is interesting. And I don't ask you about that. So the, how the church is better and worse than you imagine. So why did you include the bad parts of what the church has done? Because <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> um, I mean, part of the problem with being a student of history is you, you know where the bodies are buried. It's so confronting to read the history of the West and to see how Christians have participated in the most base instincts of humanity. So it it didn't seem to us um, at all plausible or true just to give you a beautiful account of great things Christians had done. That just wouldn't seem like a a truthful or strategic way to approach this question. Mm. And it was Jesus, after all, who said, take the log out of your own eye, then you can see the speck in someone else's eye. Don't take, you know, don't worry about the speck in their eye when there's a log in yours. And so this uh, whole documentary is a is a, an exercise in trying to look at the log in the Christian eye. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, a number of questions are coming in, which is terrific, and we'll start to move to those now. Um, a lot of questions are revolve around how did you choose what you chose to tell? So, for example, one question is, are there any stories you really wanted to include but just couldn't because of time, logistics, etc.? I suppose that really raises the question of uh, how you chose what to tell. Well, one thing we knew we couldn't do would be a comprehensive 2,000 years of history. Yes, we'd um, still be here. We, we'd be here a long time uh, if we did that. But what we tried to do with things, it was uh, thematic. So yeah. religion and violence, human value, charity and power and humility. You would have perhaps picked up those themes there and they're the episodes. Um, but it's also kind of indicative. So we're trying to give an indication of some of the classic terrible moments but also some of the better moments as as things that are indicative of what the faith brings to the world mm. and so there's a theme going themes going on there as well as that also we kind of picked things some of us had done work in before and so in our team of people it's not a very big team but it's a team um people who had expertise in particular areas or his expertise stretching it a bit um interest in that's that it kind of mm. fell onto the whiteboard in those terms. Mm. So hence, just related to that, I suppose that maybe that's partly answering it. There's not a lot of questions related to persecution of homosexual people, perhaps, and um, child abuse within the church, etc. So was there a particular reason that you didn't explore those issues particularly? We talked at length about addressing um, institutional uh, responses to child sexual abuse. We uh, eventually decided after a pretty lengthy conversation that... On the one hand, um, we'd almost be trivialising it by sneaking it into the documentary. Right. I mean, the Crusades only got eight minutes. You know, to, to have you know eight minutes on child sexual abuse almost seems to trivialise it when it's just such a large issue and deserves its own documentary. Um, the other is that it's so recent, it would feel a little bit out of place in what is obviously an historical documentary. Mm, mm. So for those two reasons, for better or worse, maybe it wasn't the right decision. Um, every time we run one of these, people ask this question, and we're very glad for you to ask the question. But, but that was our rationale. I don't know if we got it right. Maybe we should have done something on it. But, but we um, made that decision in good faith, conscious that it will be the uh, question on everyone's mind watching this. And the answer to the question, you know, what about that, is really the same answer to the question about the Crusades or the Inquisitions or the witch trials or whatever, and that is that anyone can tell at 100 paces, that abusing children and then covering it up is not following Christ but disobeying Christ. Anyone can tell. Mm. That, is, that is such a profound contradiction of the internal logic of Christianity. Mm. Uh, there is no excuse for it. Yep. Uh, lots of questions coming, which is terrific. Uh, there's a strong focus on social justice in the documentary. Do you think social justice is essential to the gospel in light of recent statements? Yes. Yeah, we did focus on that a bit. Partly because it is a huge part of the Christian story and a gift to the world that emerges so strongly out of the heart of the gospel, the love of the gospel, God's love for, for people, his deep interest in the downtrodden, the rejected, the marginalised, the poor. Well, related to that is another question. Is The film had some fantastic examples of Christian charity. However, there have been other religions, Islam for instance, who have strong values in charity, what makes charity special for followers of Jesus and how does charity make the Christian church stand out from other religions? John? Well, um, both Islam and Christianity got it from Judaism. 
to just make it historically factual. Mm -hmm. uh, Ancient Judaism was really the only charitable show in town in antiquity. Yeah. Um, Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans didn't didn't have uh, what we now call charity. But uh, at the at the heart of sort of the Hebrew ethic was that God loves the downtrodden, and so you Israelites ought to love the downtrodden. And uh, so they did. Uh, the The slight difference was that in Jewish communities in antiquity, uh, charity was available for Jews, and and it it wasn't uh, made available more more widely. Christianity inherited that tradition from Judaism, uh, but because its theological view was that now the God of Israel had broken out into the whole world and loved the whole world equal to God's love of Israel, so charitable care is now overflowing to those who don't believe. Mm. And um, even the pagan emperor Julian acknowledges scathingly that the rotten Christians care not only for their own poor, but ours as well, he says. Yeah. That's what makes it stand out. And it certainly stands out from the Greek and Roman tradition where benefaction was a thing, where super wealthy people could you know, open their grain stores and so on. But there was always a price to be paid. There's always a social contract where the people receiving the benefit for one thing had to be citizens, non-citizens couldn't participate. And for another thing, uh, the benefactor um, deserved praise and got praise and it was like a contract that right. if I give you goods, you give me praise. That's the way it works. Whereas Christianity subverted that and said actually the, the giver should never get praise mm. for their giving mm. because it's just the nature of reality that God loves the downtrodden and so you do as well. Islam certainly has a charitable tradition, a justice tradition. The slight difference is if we're talking about what has shaped the Western world, it wouldn't be accurate to say the synagogue has shaped the Western world mm. other than the synagogue gave us the church which shaped the Western world. Mm. Um, and Islam didn't shape the Western world. Uh, there are all sorts of brilliant things you know, uh, Muslims preserved, uh, they, they preserved some philosophy, they preserved mathematics, uh, and so there have been those kinds of influences. But in terms of shaping the cultural, political, artistic, ethical, philosophical outlook of the West, Christianity is, is the dominant mm. uh, tradition. There's, there's also uh, the sense that Jesus' sharp articulation of the golden rule, yeah. that sometimes people say, I think mistakenly, that it's, oh, it's in every religion, I don't think you get it articulated quite that way, that active do unto others mm. as you would have them do, do unto you. I think that's an incredible contribution. Well, there is a question about that as well, which says, are there really no other societies or cultures in all of history that have had a similar ethic to universal human rights and that of being made in the image of God? Um, indeed. Um, so that's, that's a controversial thing to say, though. Well, or, uh, historically, or, it's not controversial. Uh, the, it is the Judeo-Christian view alone that says human beings are made in the image of God. Um, um, Buddhism um, had lots of beautiful things to say. The Buddha was, was a great guy, but he did not teach this ethic uh, that every human being is made in the image of God. Buddhist ethics is driven by the belief in non-self, and so I am to practice um, the fact that I don't exist. And so to, to mistreat someone is to nurse a sense of my own self and since my own self doesn't exist, I have to practice non-self. That's the, that's the inner logic of Buddhism, which is quite different from the idea that um, human beings are inestimably and equally precious because they are all profoundly loved by the creator of the universe. That just drives a different thing. It is, it is just the case that this universal human rights theme came only out of this Judeo-Christian tradition in the West. Yeah, I do think that revolutionary understanding of the human person 
is perhaps the great gift of Christianity. Mm, mm. Well, the key theme of the film is what you describe as the tune of Jesus, which comes from the Gospel of Luke, which is love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So why do you suggest that this in particular is the tune of Jesus and not some of his other teachings? Have you maybe just cherry-picked something that sort of sounds nice and makes Jesus radical and appealing? Uh, We haven't cherry-picked for the simple reason that Christianity centres on Christ's own self-giving on the cross. I mean, anyone can tell at 100 paces that Christianity goes on and on about the death of Jesus. Yeah. All right? (laughs) Um, It's pretty central. It is. It's central. I mean, the Christians walk around with a cross around their neck. Um, All traditional churches are built in the shape of a cross. It's cross, 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 cross. It tells you that the cross is the center of the Christian faith. What is the cross? The cross, I mean, forget whether you believe it or not. Just just as a a thought experiment, imagine believing that the God of the universe entered the world, lived the life we couldn't live, and then gave his life on our behalf on a cross. Just imagine thinking that that were true. That is an insight into the divine nature that is unique. Mm. That God is self-giving to the point of giving himself on a cross for us, right? Mm-hmm. So the Jesus ethic of love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, isn't just an arbitrary ethic. It's actually the very heartbeat of his own climactic life and mission which was to give his life on behalf of enemies Mm. so there's a straight line between that teaching and the 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 central fact of the christian gospel so no i don't think we've cherry picked it all no i think it's such a and the other thing it stands out is so radical doesn't it? it and so it captures so much of what stands christianity is unique and then things that flow from it you'll notice that the, the image of God stuff and is a huge amount of things flow out of that. And the rest of the documentary material that you see on the website, you know, literacy and education and hospitals and hospices and all these sorts of things that do flow from that. So we've, we've tried to pick things that we think are establishing something that then has an impact. Yeah, yeah. But Jesus wasn't the first to teach love enemies. Didn't other ancient teachers say similar things? For example, a pagan text predating Christ by more than a thousand years said, do not return evil to your adversity. Requite with kindness the one who does evil to you. Maintain justice for your enemy. Be friendly to your enemy. So John, how was Jesus different or maybe he wasn't? There there are Egyptian, I know of Egyptian um, texts that, that talk about kindness to enemies. Um, but they're so on the peripheral of, of the ethic itself. Right. Whereas the Jesus call to love your enemies is the very center out of which everything else flows. And we, the reason we know it's the center is because the whole story of Jesus leads to him dying on a cross. So it's the whole story of Christ is about the love of enemy. And this teaching of love your enemies is really just the, the statement of what is central to Christianity. Knowing a little about uh, ancient Babylonian um, ethics, there is no chance that love of enemy was central, was central. to Babylonian ethics. Yeah. Uh, not even close to the periphery. Right. Now, rugby union footballer Israel Folau recently tweeted, Jesus Christ is and will always be the most important thing to me above anything else in this world. Now, one person responded briefly by saying, shame he's fictitious. Now, this comment got 76 likes. So, John, it's all well and good to say that Jesus has a beautiful tune. It's becoming quite common, though, for people to say that Jesus was just a myth, a work of fiction. So, with Jesus, are we dealing with a fictitious character, or is this composer of this tune real? You're right. It's uh, increasingly the case that there are people who say Jesus never lived. Um, But because it's increasingly the case that people aren't studying history, um, it... (laughs) 
it has no force in mainstream secular scholarship to say Jesus didn't live. None. And there's a simple way you can verify this. You don't have to just take my word for it. You can go to any of any major scholarly compendium like the Oxford Classical Dictionary or the Cambridge Ancient History or the New Pauli out of Germany. Any of these sort of compendiums that are bringing together secular scholarship on the ancient world and look at the sections on the historical Jesus and they will raise zero doubt about the broad outline of his life. Mm. I and mean, forget his existence. No one in these scholarly compendiums raises any doubt about the existence of Jesus, but nor is there doubt about the broad outline of his life. It's just, I know that there are sort of internet skeptics um, and the occasional article arguing he didn't live, but it, it, it's just not a thing in secular scholarship. Another question from our audience here today. Having gone through this journey and learning what has happened in the past of the church, how has that changed or challenged your own personal faith and relationship with God? Maybe we'll start with you, Simon. Yeah, I, I was both uh, challenged in some ways, and yet I keep saying, I've said this to a few people, Christians are the people who turn up every week and acknowledge that they are failed, broken people in need of redemption. So if you sort of enlarge that to history, in a, in a, at one level it's not surprising. But I would say I've been really inspired by some of the people who, who truly do live heroic lives of self-sacrifice and service uh, because they believe in this story mm. and because they are able to put it in a kind of eternal perspective. I, I've been inspired, encouraged and sort of uh, felt like, well, I probably can't live up to that. But maybe if it draws me some way towards something more like that, mm. I think that's worth examining these lives. Yeah. How about you, John? How has it challenged you? Uh, I feel it has um, quite profoundly affected me. I don't know that I was ever a triumphalist Christian um, before making the film, but if there was any triumphalism in me, uh, the, making this film has just knocked that out. Mm. This, the, the idea that you know, the church is only good and the church rocks, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. Um, See, I grew up in the church, so I never had that thought. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I, I came to it later, and, and so maybe I did have a too high a view of the church. The other thing is, um, may, it's made me a little bit uh, terrified about what blind spots I might have that I can't mm. see. I mean, I can look back on the Crusaders with 2020 vision and um, say, how could they think that? But actually, what that makes me think about is what is in my own life and culture that 100, 200 years from now people will look back on. And mm. so, so it's very humbling at that yeah. level. But, but I must say, I've come out the other end of this documentary um, more and more convinced that the beautiful tune of Jesus, that God loves the world so profoundly, he entered into the world in Christ and gave himself for us, that that is the most beautiful tune. And um, the influence of that tune in the world and in, and in, you know, in my own life and in my own little church in the suburbs, can, can be profound. Hmm. Got another, another question here, which is probably both of you can answer. Uh, how can I help my Christian friend to live more like Jesus? I'm wondering whether that's a non-Christian person asking that question, <laughs> and, and I think it's a good question to ask them. You should challenge them to try to be that. Um, sometimes it's a heroic thing for someone just to be a little bit kinder than they were otherwise. Mm. And mm. so I have seen actually some beautiful moments of that it, it's jesus that makes christians look bad mm. um, <laughs> it's jesus that makes this such a problem because because anyone can tell that jesus was this bizarre combination of 
authority and humility, of conviction and compassion and self-giving. The problem with a hateful Christian is not their Christianity, but their lack of it. Mm. Another question here is, I'm glad Jesus and the church changed the world. Do we really still need them anymore? Simon. Yeah, I do. I think we do. Because it's not, it's not only... <laughs> the job. <laughs> it's not only the fact that they brought these good things to the world, but because I think it's true. Mm. And that's the key, isn't it? And um, it's, whether it is or, is or not. And so, yeah, I do think so. I think these, even some of these great act, actions of the best examples are kind of pointers back to something that is either real or it isn't. Mm. And in my mind, we need that sort of hope, that sort of eternal perspective, a sense that there is more to life than just what we can see and touch and measure. And in my estimations, this grand story makes the most sense of the human experience. So mm. I continue to believe that and I think it's so important for people to at least consider that mm. as they go about the very difficult business of being a human being. Mm. So, John and Simon, wrapping up, final thoughts, final summary thoughts. How is the church better and worse than you ever imagined? John? Well, it's worse than you ever imagined at every point that it's defying the center of the Christian faith, which is that God loves you so much that he entered the world and gave his own life for you on a cross. Um, that love of the enemy, the love of the, the other, is the center of the Christian faith. And so every time Christians depart from that, uh, whether it be through warfare or uh, bigotry or hate or just plain selfishness and materialism, they are worst. And at that point, they're participating not in the things they claim are true at the heart of the universe. They're, they're participating in all that is most base in human culture universally. Uh, when are they better? Uh, whenever they're singing that tune. Um, mm. Whenever they realise that they are themselves fallen, uh, they have a log in their own eye, and so they go out into the world not with judgment but with a sense of compassion and love, even of the enemy, even, you know, of those who, who don't appreciate them. Uh, they go out with Christ's conviction and his compassion. If you think that's the truth at the heart, heart of the universe, God's own self-giving, it makes a massive, massive difference uh, to life uh, for, the, for the good of the world. Um, but I would endorse what Simon said a moment ago. I actually also just think it's true. Mm. And I would say all that about the negative. And then if you think of the church, but at its best moments, I think it draws together a group of people who might be completely different, different socioeconomic classes, races, cultures, whatever, and demands that they love each other and li do life together. I don't think you get that many other places, in fact. Mm. And at its best, I think that's a remarkable community. And when that community works really well, it's out in the public serving the common good. Uh, and I do think the church still does that. And I think we're a better society because of that. Mm. Well, let me leave you with the Bible's reflection, the beautiful tune of Jesus composed from Luke 6, 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guests today for our special Q&A recording, Dr. John Dixon and Simon Smart. Thank you. Thank you.